partners and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Monday morning, 27th of May, 2019. And my in-studio guest today is Doug Bandau visiting Seoul from Washington, D.C., where he works for the Cato Institute. Welcome, Doug. Uh, glad to be here. A short intro that I got off your website. Doug Bando is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, specializing in foreign policy and civil liberties. He worked as special assistant to President Ronald Reagan and editor of the political magazine Inquiry or Inquiry. He writes regularly for leading publications such as Fortune Magazine, National Interest, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Times. And his columns are often printed in the uh, Korea Times here in Seoul. He holds a JD from Stanford University, and his thoughts can be found at www.cato.org slash people slash Doug hyphen Bandow. Doug, what brings you to Korea at this time? Well, it's been a couple of years since I've been here in Seoul. A lot is going on on issues regarding the peninsula in Northeast Asia. So I thought it was time to come again and chat with folks, see what they thought in terms of policy towards uh, the DPRK, as well as relations with the Trump administration. I think it's a, there must be a, a great value add to coming to Seoul at one once in a while to just sort of yeah gauge the uh, the atmosphere and to talk to people and find out what's going on. There's only so much you can pick up through media reports or emails and uh, and, and TV news, don't you think? Absolutely, and especially if there's an opportunity where I can talk with foreign ministry, talk to people in the assembly, talk to academics, some retired, some active policy people. I have friends here, so it's a very good chance to meet with a lot of folks I've had email contact with. But it's nice to sit down, uh, you know, share some coffee, and to talk about events. Do you find that the Cato Institute is is well known in Korea? Uh, we're kind of infamous. I've been writing about the Korea issue for about thirty years, and you know, my views uh, have gotten a certain amount of notoriety here. So Cato is generally well known. Okay. Now, recently, I interviewed Bruce Klingner uh, at another DC-based right-wing think tank, the Heritage Foundation. So I should ask you early on where Cato's policy on uh, Korea, uh, specifically North Korea, differs from that of uh, Heritage. I would say we think you know, engagement with North Korea is very important. We have no illusions about the likelihood of Kim Jong-un giving up all of his nuclear weapons. We certainly don't view him as being some kind of humanitarian and liberal. Nevertheless, we're very supportive of what the president has done in terms of having summits to, to negotiate these issues. I think Heritage is simply more skeptical. They're more supportive of sanctions. You know, they want more of a pressure program. My guess is Bruce is uh, rather skeptical about the results that are likely to come from the president's initiative. And what about uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton? Uh, where, how do you feel about his... Um some might say hawkish stance. Well, I've known John for about 20 years. I oh, mean, personally? Oh, yes. Okay. I mean, John is kind of the ultimate uber hawk. You know, so John, frankly, John would be happier if the U.S. was involved in bombing several nations at once. North Korea is one of them. He, I mean, he's written that. He wrote an article last year in favor of bombing North Korea. He's advocated war against Iran. I mean, this is somebody who is very, very hawkish. He's very principled. You know, he believes this. this is, he's not cynical in that sense. Uh, I think those views, unfortunately, are rather dangerous. He still defends the Iraq intervention, which most people acknowledge really has been catastrophic. So, you know, John's views are really at the outer edge of hawkishness in Washington. Now, you pointed out uh, somewhat ironically uh, on your Twitter feed recently that John Bolton seems surprisingly worried about North Korea following United Nations resolutions. Well, that's right. You know, John was acting uh, you know, U.S. US uh, ambassador to the U.N. under George W. Bush. It's fair to say his view of the U.N. was never a positive one. And uh, you would never imagine him in the councils of power in Washington worried very much about whether the U.S. was following U.N. resolutions. So it was rather ironic to see what he said. 
That's right. What was his famous quote again? Something about you could lop the top 10 floors off the United Nations General Assembly building in New York and it wouldn't make a bit of difference. Exactly. That's right. I do hope to have him on the podcast one day to repeat those exact words. Well, you should. Give it a try. He's a great, he'd be a great guest to have on. Now, how do you currently feel about uh, Donald Trump's, uh, President Trump's policy on North Korean denuclearization? Well, this is one of those areas. I mean, in many ways, I think it's characteristic of President Trump. I mean, as anyone uh, you know, who watches what this administration is up to understands, this is a very different president. I'm putting that politely, a very unique one. I think that his opening to North Korea was very good. In fact, to engage North Korea is long overdue, a willingness to sit down and talk and attempt to reach some kind of peaceful accommodation. All of that he deserves great credit on. The problem is that, you know, these are things that it's very hard to get done only with principle to principle, especially when he, frankly, doesn't know very much about the issue. And I think that's been our challenge here, that uh, he's trying to do this top down, which can be helpful in making general policy, but the details are going to have to be worked out. And that, I think, is what is re was really lacking at the Hanoi summit. Right. We really haven't seen... Uh, much success in the uh, at the working level. Steve Began's had a lot of difficulty meeting with uh, with North Korea. Mike Pompeo hasn't visited for a few months, and maybe that's where we need to have some real uh, movement. I think we need movement there, but it also requires the U.S. to make very clear it's quite prepared to essentially you know take some steps along the way. I'd love to have full denuclearization. I'm skeptical that's going to happen, but I think we could make a lot of progress along the way. I mean, closing Yongbyon would be very useful. There are a number of steps one could imagine getting along the way. That's going to require an understanding on both sides that can be done, but it's going to require serious negotiation at the working level with the support of those above. What we've seen seems to be a desire for just the big deal, everything for everything, which I think is very unlikely. And it's hard to support working level negotiations if that's the U.S. position. Now, you mentioned just earlier that you uh, have written on uh, Korean issues for a long time, for about 30 years, I think you said. In 1992, you, uh, together with uh, Ted Galen Carpenter, co-edited a, uh, a book called The U.S.-South Korean Alliance, Time for a Change? Question mark. Wait, was it a question mark or was it a statement? I, actually, I'm not sure now. Well, I, I think the title on the book might have been uh, a question mark, but we would have viewed it as a statement. But that came out of a conference where we had people on both sides, so we wanted to be fair to the other side, too. Uh, now, was that a prequel or earlier version of the uh, the Korea conundrum that you and Ted Gannon Carpenter co-published in uh, late 2004? Well, the critical thing was that you know, the conference volume, we were exploring issues early on. Ted and I were able to present our views in full with our own book, so we laid them out in more detail. And you know, push them very hard. Yeah. So briefly for our listeners, in that later book, the, the one from 2004, The uh, Korea Conundrum, you both argued very strongly that uh, South Korea is a security free rider, that U.S. troops should be recalled from South Korea, all of them, and that the Chorus Alliance is no longer necessary. In fact, you warned that the U.S. and Korea are in for a, quote, nasty divorce, unquote, because of the strains in their alliance. You also call upon South Korea and Japan to develop their own nuclear programs to counter the North Korean threat. Now, I point out to, to listeners that these words were written 15 years ago. Uh, Doug, if you were to publish an updated edition of that book today, would anything change? Well, not substantively. Obviously, the international environment is very different and, frankly, much more positive. I mean, our view has always been uh, that you know, the ROK has uh, done dramatically well, that uh, both the move towards a more market-oriented economy in the 1960s and finally, democracy in the late 1980s has led to the development of uh, South Korea as one of the uh, one of the world's leading countries. And in our view, that means it's able to defend itself and certainly look at its economic strength vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Look at its population. 
On the conventional side, certainly it can handle any kind of difficulties. And our view on the nuclear issue is that we both are not particularly fans of proliferation. On the other hand, we're very nervous about a situation where only the bad guys have guns, essentially. So if you look at Northeast Asia, it's only Russia, China, and North Korea with nuclear weapons. And then the U.S. is expected to defend everybody else with nuclear weapons. You know, that's a very dangerous situation, made far more dangerous if North Korea has the capacity to strike the U.S., so our hope was to start a debate. We need to have a discussion about what is the best policy on nuclear weapons. And that debate itself might put pressure on China to do more on this issue. So I think that the arguments we made hold up very well on the substance. You know, we're living in a new world today, one that I think in many ways supports our views even stronger. So if we take the, uh, the NRA mantra that uh, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, perhaps the only thing that can stop a bad uh, state actor with a nuclear weapon is more good state actors with nuclear weapons. Is that a, a fair restatement of what you just said? Yes, recognizing that there are a lot of potential bad outcomes out of that. That is, the more countries that have nuclear weapons, there are more possibility for mistake and misunderstandings as well. The problem becomes, of course, South Koreans at some point have to ask the question, is the United States prepared to sacrifice Los Angeles to protect Seoul? That's not so clear. It's one thing to threaten it, especially where North Korea itself has no nuclear capacity to hit Los Angeles. But as that changes, then suddenly the viability of extended deterrence falls. But I think you uh, you phrase that as a, a zero something, you know, save Seoul, lose Los Angeles. Uh, whereas another way of looking at it is that uh, a war on the Korean Peninsula, even if U.S. troops aren't here, uh, will not be good for the U.S. economy and, and may even uh, lead to uh, radiation fallout on the U.S. mainland. Oh, no doubt. I mean, the U.S. certainly doesn't want a war on the Korean Peninsula. The question is, who should prevent that war? Who should deter and who should fight that war? And it's one thing for the United States to do that at a time where South Korea is recovering from the Korean War, at a time where South Korea's economy probably was smaller than that of North Korea. Chinese troops are still on the peninsula. I think it's much harder to argue today that the U.S. has to be involved everywhere. I mean, what you see is, quite honestly, it's not just Asia, it's uh, Europe. I mean, the Europeans have a massive advantage over Russia. They want the U.S. to defend them. Last week, I was in Lithuania. They, of course, want America to defend them. We see that in the Middle East, countries, you know, Saudi Arabia and others expect America to defend them. You know, at some point, the burden on the United States is extraordinary, and the risk of war remains very significant. That is, if there is war and the U.S. is called upon, and if North Korea suddenly has nuclear weapons, imagine what the cost of that is. So I'm arguing that we have to recalculate that, that America's commitment made sense in the early years after uh, both World War II and the Korean War. doesn't really make sense in 2019. This is something I think the Americans need to debate, especially given their own financial problems, which is going to make it much harder to carry these burdens in coming years. All right. Now, you, you mentioned that you've uh, you've argued consistently for years. Now, surely it must be to the point of boredom in you uh, that U.S. Uh, U.S. interests are not served uh, by stationing troops in South Korea and, and helping to, uh, to fund the defense of South Korea. One of your reasons for that, at least in previous columns, was that uh, first of all, North Korea doesn't present a credible threat to the continent, continental United States. Another reason was that South Korea is strong and wealthy enough, as you mentioned before, that it's, it's been a success, uh, strong and wealthy enough to stand up for itself and defend itself against threats from North Korea. So my question is, is this still the case? Does North Korea, with its ICBMs and miniaturized nuclear warhead capability, pose a credible threat against the U.S.? Well, the answer is no, in the sense that 
Now, Kim Jong-un has, is, in my view, not suicidal. I don't think his father was. I don't think his grandfather was. I think all three of them want their virgins in this world, not the next. You know, I don't think Kim Jong-un is sitting in Pyongyang hoping to go out of this world in a radioactive funeral pyre, which is exactly what would happen if he attacked America. He's interested in the United States because the United States is here and threatening North Korea. I think he's after deterrence. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time threatening China or Russia or Europe or Africa or South America. He threatens the countries around him and he threatens the U.S. So I think that absent an American commitment to South Korea, North Korea would have essentially no interest in the United States. So in that sense, I don't think there's an active threat. He's a nasty character. I'll be very happy when North Korea disappears and the Kim dynasty is uh, dust. But we're not at that point yet. Well, uh, let me throw a little uh, thought experiment at you. Uh, you worked uh, for Ronald Reagan back in the 1980s, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Now, I remember he said, this is back when I was in elementary school, he said something about, uh, also a, similarly as a thought experiment, if the aliens you know, were ever to come down and attack Earth, we would uh, throw aside all of our uh, national disputes and squabbles yeah. and unite together and fight off the aliens. I, I'm paraphrasing very vaguely, yeah. but he did say something like it, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Now... It seems to me, having watched North Korea for a long time, that uh, having the United States as an external enemy is precisely what gives the North Korean uh, administration its its stability, its external uh, factors against which it could always rail and push without having, you know, as long as the, the poor people of the rural parts of North Korea are looking to the United States as the enemy, they can't be looking to their own government for uh, and asking, you know, why are you failing us? Why are you not feeding us? Why is our economy not growing? Uh, and, and so there's some irony in that, that actually the presence of the U.S. as external threat is precisely what North Korea needs in order to keep itself uh, going as a separate Korea, right? Oh, I think that's right. I think from North Korea's standpoint, you need that external enemy. It would be a real problem for the regime if the U.S. wasn't around, you know, since it wasn't convenient to kick them around anymore. You know, if the U.S. didn't have troops there, if the U.S. was not seen as a threat, as it was not a credibly, somehow credible for the uh, you know, Kim administration to try to blame the U.S. for everything, I think it would be much harder. You see the rhetoric. Now, I'm told that uh, well, the propaganda in Pyongyang has eased against the United States. The last time I was there was, was in 2017. And, of course, the U.S. is the enemy all over. It has been all the time. You go to the, uh, the war museum from the Korean War, you know, the U.S. is the enemy. You see that all over. I think that's right. I think the big problem for the North, of course, especially today, is that you know, information now gets into North Korea. I mean, people I've talked to think the biggest threat to the North is probably flash drives with South Korean uh, you know, soap operas and you know, TV shows and other things on it. That if you expose to the North you know, its people that they've been lied to, it makes the regime uh, you know, it's very hard. It's one reason I think the U.S. administration made a major mistake closing off U.S. travel. You know, it's not that American visitors are going to transform North Korea and we're going to have the Korean Spring. But my view is that every time a North Korean meets an American, it helps show that they've been lied to. You know, that they will learn that the propaganda that they had in the past simply wasn't true. That's what we want. We play the long game, the more information that goes in. And that's a game that the South Korea clearly can play better than America, but the U.S. can help. You mentioned that you were in North Korea in 2017. Yeah, back in June of 2017. It, uh, I spent a week over there. I'd been there actually 25 years before that, 1992. That was a very different place. I mean, you know, the rural areas are still pretty poor, but you know, Pyongyang was more like a normal city. Certainly not Seoul. Nevertheless, there were private cars. Women dressed very nice this time. They hadn't the last time I was there. Uh, you know, people had cell phones, were playing on their phones while I was, you know, kind of playing tourist. I mean, I had a, it was a different feel. You saw new development. People were buying food in, from, you know, small shops and stuff. So it struck me that the, the place had changed some. 
But when you said, did you say to your North Korean guides or any North Korean interlocutors uh, that you believe that uh, uh, the U.S. should end the alliance with South Korea and remove all troops from the U.S. Uh, from the Korean Peninsula? Well, they're aware of my writing. I'm told that the folks in the U.N. Uh, mission do follow it. Uh, the folks I uh, talked to at the foreign ministry seem familiar with it. And they're certainly familiar with those arguments as well. Are they uh, happy with those arguments? Oh, I think they'd like to see that, but it's, in some sense, that's not their emphasis. What their emphasis in talking to me was they wanted to engage the U.S. and have negotiations. That they want, essentially, they wanted to be respected. They wanted to, to have that direct line. That seemed to be the thing they focused on. When you come to South Korea, do you meet with people from USFK? I have in the past. I don't have any appointments set up this time, but I would like that. I don't have any current contacts there, but I have met with them in the past. In the past, when you went in, you, you sort of walk in and say, guys, you should all go back home. And how do, does that blow their minds? How do they react to that? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, they're certainly, at least publicly, they're not supportive. Mm. I mean, for the most part, the U.S. military is very supportive of all the alliances that we have. You know, they prepare for different contingencies. It's kind of their job to, you know, support uh, the operations uh, as uh, expressed by the president. What I found is that military officers back in the U.S., you know, in a more theoretical sense, some of them are actually much more skeptical of U.S. alliances, skeptical of commitments to Europe, what the impact is, skeptical in terms of Korea and Japan. That, uh, you know, I haven't heard any of them come out publicly, at least while they are in uniform, you know, supporting my positions. But privately, I've certainly found some that view the current you know, their, their view is America is overextended and it's dangerous uh, for the U.S. in the long term. Are there uh, potential negative consequences for the U.S. to abrogate its uh, its alliance relationships? I mean, does that set up the U.S. as uh, being an unreliable actor and uh, one that you know, nations would have a hard time uh, trusting? Well, a lot is the question of how you, uh, you get out of your current uh, commitment. My view has always been it should be a phased withdrawal. It should be done you know, with, uh, you know, clearly con conjunction with ROK security needs, that it should be done uh, with diplomatic discussions throughout Northeast Asia, the question of relationships with other countries as well. It's not something one should do precipitously. You know, the ROK has modeled its military and its foreign policy based on this commitment. You don't walk out tomorrow. I mean, one of the challenges, in my view, of the Trump, uh, President Trump, is that while he says some things that in a broad sense I agree with regarding both the ROK relationship and NATO, I think he does it precisely wrong in the sense that you don't talk about blowing it up. You don't spend your time insulting your allies. You know, the point is you want to do it right because you want it to work. You know, the most dangerous thing would be a precipitous withdrawal where the ROK didn't feel ready, you know, for its defense uh, in terms of the North, where it might give the North a sense of an opportunity. You know, that would be dangerous. You don't want to do it that way. How do you feel about South Korea and Japan developing their own nuclear weapons uh, right now? I don't think I would stand against it. That is, you know, this is one of those issues where over the long term, I worry not only about North Korea, but quite honestly, more about China if there's going to be a significant security threat in the future, and I don't think we're at that point today, it's hard to believe it's anybody except the PRC. I mean, India is a long ways behind. You know, I mean, other countries out there just don't strike me as being you know, that kind of a significant threat. European Union, I don't ever see as really being a cohesive nation state. So it's really China. And the question is, what's the best way to try to constrain China? It's far better for them, its neighbors, to be able to deter it than for its neighbors to have to rely forever on America, especially where it's not clear they can uh, you know, rely on a commitment that requires the U.S. to threaten nuclear war against China. And to me, the most important thing is simply discussing that possibility might change the calculus in both Pyongyang and China. I mean, if Pyongyang understands 
that a continued nuclear developments, you know, might lead to Japan in particular having nuclear weapons, and certainly in Beijing, the thought of uh, you know, using the word Tokyo in the same sentence with nuclear weapons would be very upsetting. We might see a change in behavior of both those countries. So I think the debate is healthy. You know, these are countries which shouldn't expect forever to be dependent on the United States. I mean, the ROK is seeing the price of that today, where people I talk to in South Korea want to see the current opening succeed. They think there may be a moment here. They're worried about how the Trump administration is handling it. And in many ways, for years, uh, the Republic of Korea has offloaded its security onto the United States. The result of that is the U.S. makes decisions for the United States first, not for South Korea. There's a cost you know, for South Korea in that. And over the long term, South Koreans have to decide if it's worth it. Mm. Now, you've been, here you are. You've been saying the same thing consistently for over a quarter of a century. And yet your view still hasn't become the accepted mainstream in any political party. Uh, what prevents you from picking up your bat and ball and going home? Well, I've thought about that. On the other hand, I really like international affairs. You know, my view is there are a lot of issues out there where it takes a lot of time to change things. And look, I talk about more things than just the U.S.-South Korean relationship. True. We'll come to one of those points later on. But yeah, do go on. Sorry. But, but that, that's the point is that in many ways, uh, you know, at one point, frankly, I was starting to write less about the Koreas. I was going to focus more on China, in part because of this, on the theory that I've had my say. There are other things I can do. But then everything blew up with North Korea in 2017 with the Trump administration looking very bad. And then last year, it's all been negotiation. So that's drawn me in very much kind of back towards the Korean issue. I don't write as much about U.S.-South Korean relations directly. I've been focusing more on North Korea in recent times. Now, how do you respond to people who, would, who might classify your views as isolationist, a sort of retreat from the world point of view? Well, I've never understood people whose view is the best form of international relations is having the U.S. bomb other countries. I mean, the U.S. has been involved all over. The U.S. You know, created chaos in the Middle East with the invasion of Iraq, an utter catastrophe. Did more of the same in Libya, another catastrophe in my view. You know, the U.S. You know, kind of conducts regime change without much thought in terms of what's going to happen after that. And its policies, it follows, are its own uh, for its own interests, not anyone else. I don't see pulling back militarily as being isolationism. I'm very much pro-free trade. I think President Trump has been very bad on this issue. I like immigration. I think that we should have contact with other countries. Personally, I love to travel. It's why I'm here in Seoul today. Last week, I was in Lithuania. I'm going to have two weeks in China in July or earlier uh, you know, this year. You know, I was in Turkey. I was in Nigeria. I'll be in Nigeria back in the, in the fall. I travel all over. My view is the best ambassadors for America tend to be Americans as opposed to the U.S. government. Mm. So I don't see anything isolationist. I see it as a good policy that the U.S. should be prepared to intervene if absolutely necessary, but it's intervention of a last resort. The U.S. shouldn't act like it's the global policeman. You know, have to have troops all over, have to be first resort especially for countries which really are capable of defending themselves. Foreign policies should change over time. The end of uh, World War II with the Cold War, the U.S. had to play a much bigger role internationally, but that world has been utterly swept away. It makes no sense to maintain an alliance structure and force structure based on a world that no longer exists. It really should be changed. And the final point is the U.S. is effectively bankrupt. The U.S. has something like $200 trillion uh, you know, dollars, U.S. dollars in unfunded liabilities for its medical programs, its retirement programs. You know, I don't know how it's going to be funding in a, a continued alliance structure and pay for the needs of its elderly citizens. That's going to create a real political battle in America. It's going to be very ugly. If international relations follows nature in abhorring a vacuum, 
Are you not concerned that uh, a retreat by America would let China or Russia or other nations become the natural leaders or hegemons? Well, I don't think there's any chance of Russia being a natural hegemon. Russia is a declining power. I think Russia is back to where it was essentially in 1914. It's a, a kind of a great power that wants secure borders. It wants to be respected. It clearly can be contained by its neighbors. Last year, France spent more on the military than Russia. The idea that the uh, Europeans are unable to contain uh, Russia, I think, is kind of fantastic. I think well, then why have they dropped the ball so badly with uh, the Crimea? The question is, what do you want? What do you want to do on the Crimea? I mean, uh, Ukraine is not part of NATO, so there's no treaty commitment. You know, unless people are willing to go to war over uh, you know Crimea, Russia is not going to give it up. One can accept that some bad things happen in the world, and I don't think that there's easy solutions. The question is, what do you do there? I would argue the best uh, you know, solution there is to suggest kind of a modus vivendi with the Russians, which is no one talks anymore about bringing Ukraine into NATO. And what the Russians do is stop uh, you know, causing a mess in the Donbass and their support for essentially a civil war in Ukraine. And the reality is that the West, I think, has to accept in practice the Russians have Crimea, even if they don't recognize it formally. I don't see that's going to change. Sanctions won't change that. So unless you want a war, I don't see how you change that. I, well, I, I think you're probably right. And I don't hear anybody actually advocating war over the Crimea. But when you say that, that Europe has been successful and is able to contain Russia, I look at the Crimea as a great counterexample of, well, it didn't do a very good job containing Russia there, did it? But it wasn't trying to. I mean, again, it, uh, the idea that you know, Europe is going to launch offensive campaigns to protect countries that have never had an alliance relationship, I think is unrealistic. The question is, can the Europeans sustain and protect themselves today you know, at the borders that they have and the alliance that they have? I think the answer is yes, if they're prepared to. The challenge, of course, is what makes Eastern Europeans nervous is they're not convinced that uh, the rest of Europe wants to defend them. Certainly the case of the Baltic countries. That's but, right, where but, you were last week. That's right. But again, the question is, at what point are you prepared to go to war? My view is that Americans you know, should not have their lives on the line for everybody else all over the world simply because other people would like it. The question is, is it necessary for the U.S. to be prepared to fight a war? The point is, the moment you create a commitment, you either live up to it or you break commitments. You know, at that point, you create a, you know, disincentives to your allies to do more. The Europeans have certainly proved that. You also create the danger of reckless behavior by your allies. I think Georgia showed that. Georgia believed the U.S. would support them. And frankly, uh, all the evidence is they started the shooting of the, uh, the conflict in August of 2008. That doesn't mean that Putin wasn't happy, you know, unhappy about taking advantage, but it certainly suggested that President Saakashvili thought America was behind him and started doing something very stupid, which was shelling Russian troops. Very bad idea. The U.S. has to worry about that with Taiwan. To the extent that Taiwan thinks America is behind them, much more likely we might get a more radical DPP government that might consider a declaration of independence. That would be extraordinarily dangerous. I love the Taiwanese. But I don't want them to provoke a war, assuming the U.S. is going to save them if it isn't. Uh, but they they might be driven to uh, develop their own nuclear programs after South Korea and Japan do. Well, of course, if that stopped uh, the threat of a, a Chinese invasion, that might be a good thing. The challenge there, of course, is that the, the Chinese might try to preempt. I mean, these things are very unpredictable. But I think, again, from an American standpoint, does it make sense to threaten to go to war over Taiwan, which I have to say, even liberal college students there who I talk to, who don't like censorship, who don't like what the Communist Party is doing in a number of areas, 
they almost unanimously believe Taiwan's part of China. That's a very dangerous situation. I frankly think it's more dangerous than the Korean Peninsula. What, uh, what's your opinion on uh, Senator Lindsey Graham's belief that any conflict on the Korean Peninsula would be, quote, over there uh, and not involving America? Well, if you see what I tweet about the senator, you'd, you'd see what my thoughts are on him. I mean, quite honestly, the man's an idiot. I mean, anyone who says that, of course, yeah, I mean, it's inconceivable that, that a serious political leader in the United States could say such a thing. I've responded by saying, well, that sort of sentiment doesn't make my friends in Seoul feel you know, very secure. I mean, it's a crazy statement. I mean, the first point, of course, is there are about a quarter of a million Americans in South Korea any particular day. If you include military personnel, their dependents, business people, you know, visitors, tourists, students, and others. So America would be in it. Number two, the U.S. has a treaty commitment. So if war broke out, the U.S. would be there militarily very heavy, very quickly. And of course, you know, the North probably has the capacity. I mean, you know, these things aren't entirely clear. But if it has the capacity to hit Okinawa and hit Guam, of course, Americans are going to be part of that. And frankly, the U.S. should be horrified at the thought, the senator should be horrified at the thought of triggering a conflict that could result in the utter destruction of Seoul. I mean, the, the, the idea that a Korean war would be easy, I mean, the U.S. and South Korea would win, but the consequences very likely would be hideous. I thought it utterly irresponsible. The senator also advocated that the U.S. pull its dependence out of South Korea. And one could imagine the panic that would ensue from that. Could you imagine if the U.S. announced it was pulling out all non-essential personnel from South Korea, that also would signal the North that war was likely to come, and one could imagine how they might respond to that. Okay, but, uh, but Doug, correct me if I'm wrong, if you got what you wanted uh, through diplomacy and uh, following the right procedure, the alliance between South Korea and the United States rendered and the U.S. troops were drawn home, how different would that be from what uh, Senator Graham is saying? Because if what I say is, okay, you all, we're going to have a six-year drawdown, and we're prepared to sell the South Koreans uh, you know, how, whatever weapons they want, you know, that in, in the interim they can make whatever arrangements they want with their neighbors in terms of alliances, as well as dealing with North Korea, there's plenty of time to adapt. You know, unless one believes that South Korea is unwilling to defend itself, you know, unless the, uh, one believes it's unwilling to spend the money, create the, the force structure, but then it's, that strikes me as that's a problem that's really not America's problem. That I don't see any evidence that South Korea is unwilling to take the steps necessary to defend itself. You know, why shouldn't it? You know, why should it be able to rely forever on American assistance when, in fact, it's graduated to the level of a significant international power? What are your thoughts on uh, the various levels of sanctions imposed on North Korea? Well, sanctions make a lot of sense as long as they're part of a negotiating process. And I think there, at least, the president has deserved some credit, which is he's tried to open up a negotiating process. If sanctions are simply applied in the assumption that one can batter the regime and force it to you know, do what it wants, the history there is not very positive. You know, this administration, frankly, has failed utterly in all of its sanctions efforts. It's increased sanctions on Cuba. Of course, that's had no impact on Cuban policy. But huge sanctions on Venezuela, hoping to bring down that regime. Nothing's happened there, positively anyway. You know, increased sanctions on Russia has had no impact in terms of Russian, you know, holding uh, Crimea or its involvement in the Donbass. And increased sanctions on North Korea. You know, so the administration has seemed to, th and, and Iran, I mean, increased sanctions on Iran, and Iran has not been willing to, to yield on its position. So, so far, the, what we see with this administration and sanctions is you can punish regimes, and if that's your objective, that's fine. You know, diminish the amount of money they have, et cetera. But it makes sense only if you offer a realistic opportunity and deal with what they want. And on North Korea, that requires dealing with security concerns. 
And I think the problem for North Korea, dealing with North Korea, is yes, Kim Jong Un pretty clearly wants economic development, but he also wants regime survival. So if you basically demand that he give everything up and then trust you, especially after your experience in places like Libya. I think that's a non-starter. So it requires, you know, a, a somewhat different approach. That uh, sanctions can play a role in that, as long as you use that as part of the negotiating process. Do you have any moral opposition to Kim Jong Un remaining in power after reaching an agreement with the United States and denuclearization, or something close to it, is achieved? Oh, look, I'd love to see him gone. I'd love to see the regime in Eritrea gone. I'd love to see the Chinese dictatorship gone. I'd love to see Vladimir Putin out of power. I'd love to see Maduro gone from Venezuela. I wish the Castro regime was gone from Cuba. But the answer is, okay, then what? So, yes, I'd love to see him gone. Uh, but I think the first step is to try to reduce security tensions. That is, if you don't resolve the nuclear issue in some fashion, if you don't create a stable and peaceful environment on the Korean Peninsula, I don't see how you improve human rights there. Starting with human rights, I think, is a non-starter. It's essentially an attack on their political system. Very, very hard to get them to agree on that. I think the starting point has to be on the security side. I'd love to see transformation on human rights. I'm glad there are human rights groups out there. I've written on the issue. I've written on religious persecution there, as well as other issues. I write about religious persecution and human rights in other countries as well. I think it's an important issue. I think there are very real limitations in what the U.S. can achieve. So one has to be realistic in the expectations. In a piece for the National Interest earlier this month titled "On North Korea: A Return to Fire and Fury Isn't Worth the Risks," you wrote. Complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, while desirable, is not a prerequisite for American security. Now, you realize that that goes against the grain of uh, U.S. security orthodoxy, don't you? I mean, much of what I write goes against the grain of uh, security orthodoxy. Well, so how do you hope to get that message across then? Well, my hope is that people are going to sit up at some point and realize you know, that we dealt with uh, the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons. We dealt with Mao Zedong with su- uh, nuclear weapons. I had a piece uh, earlier in National Interest, probably a year ago, that uh, pointed out that Mao Zedong said far crazier things than North Koreans have ever said. I mean, Mao Zedong was saying things to diplomats like, well, a nuclear war wouldn't be a big deal. We have so many people here, you know. Well, if nuclear war wiped out half of mankind, it wouldn't be a big problem because, you know, it'd be grow back and the world would be socialist. So what's the big deal? I mean, we had the head of a country saying stuff like that that was building nuclear weapons. The U.S. government considered preventative war uh, under both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and I think correctly decided against it. So the U.S. has deterred really awful regimes in the past. And that's my essential point is that unless we believe North Korea is suicidal, and I don't, I just see no evidence of that. Unless we believe they're suicidal, they don't want to be annihilated, in which case they can be deterred. Okay, but apart from that question of is North Korea suicidal, are they likely to use nuclear weapons in a first strike against the United States? Leaving that question aside for a moment, there's also the risk of proliferation of nuclear weapons technologies for money, for example, to Syria or Iran. I think North Korea has shown a track record in, in being willing to sell things, hasn't it? Oh, sure. Look, I would much prefer that they not have nuclear weapons. So that I'm... I, My view is the U.S. should be involved in trying to convince them to give up their nuclear weapons. I mean, one could imagine trying to create some proliferation safeguards on the way to denuclearization, even if you don't get all the way to denuclearization. You know, there are a number of potential objectives there. But the point is the U.S. lived with uh, 
if I might say the most dangerous regime on earth in my view with uh, nuclear weapons today is Pakistan. This is a terribly unstable place. This is a a place where the civilians don't really control uh, the military. This is a place where radical Islamists have an enormously important role and it has nuclear weapons. And uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, didn't do anything in particular. We didn't want them to build them. We didn't do anything in particular to stop them. We didn't put sanctions on like we'd done in North Korea. We didn't threaten them with war. Uh, same thing with India. So the point is the U.S. has recognized that there are realities you have to deal with unless you're willing to go to war. It turns out it's rather hard to stop some of these countries from getting nuclear weapons. Well, and also India and Pakistan never threatened the United States directly. That's right. But they never if, made but, video but, tapes of uh, showing what an attack on the Pentagon or sort of the Capitol building would look like. Well, but, but uh, Pakistan is filled with those kinds of people. And, of course, Pakistan, you know, did help proliferate. I mean, Pakistan was selling, you know, plane loads of stuff. Uh, AQ Khan had essentially a nukes R us operation. Good. Now, was he acting on behalf of the Pakistani state? Well, of that's, course. That's, we, a, that's a key question. Absolutely. Isn't it? I mean, and we, simply we having a nation full of yeah. people who'd like to bomb America is not the same as having a state that does that as state policy. But, but if you have a state that's very unstable, you have a state that could fall, a state where the civilians don't control the military. And if you have a state where, yes, it says it knew nothing about what the man was up to, but is that believable? You know, let's face it, I would much prefer that uh, you know, Pakistan not have nuclear weapons. And if I had to choose between Pakistan and the North Korea, which one I, I think is more dangerous, I think Pakistan's probably more dangerous, especially vis-a-vis India. If there's a war there, I mean, you know, they, they teetered on that uh, you know, recently you know, with the last uh, you know, kind of uh, attack that the Pakistanis, or at least was, was launched from Pakistan, long thought to be supported by the intelligence services of the Pakistani military. My, but all the, all the proliferation concerns that you mentioned are serious concerns with Pakistan. You know, I mean, indeed, it, you know, so we had that proliferation. So I, I don't think proliferation is a good thing, but I also recognize the U.S. ability to stop it, you know, again, is problematic. I'd like to stop it with North Korea. I think the U.S. should be engaged to do that. But I also argue that the U.S. has to recognize in that sense it's not dealing so much with the, the existential threat in a way that I worried a lot more during the Cold War with the nuclear exchange than I worry about today in exchange uh, with North Korea. Now, in that same piece that you wrote earlier this month, you said Kim's willingness to engage in meaningful arms control, whether or not doing so leads to full denuclearization, can only be tested by further negotiations. Are you advocating here for more summits between President Trump and Mr. Kim? Well, I think a summit is realistic only if there's some agreement on whatever's going to come out of it uh, before they meet. So I would like to see us have another summit, but that means I'd like to have us have something you know, that comes out of the summit. I think a failed, another failed summit would be very dangerous. I think given especially how President Trump views things in a personal terms, uh, you know, kind of he, he views these things, I think, very much as part of his ego, very much as part of, uh, you know, whether he's winning. You want to make sure that you have something there. You know, and I think they could do that. I mean, I would. Lo- I think the U.S. should present as a success, for example, you know, opening liaison offices. This shouldn't be viewed as a reward for North Korea. It makes sense to talk to other countries. I mean, imagine having you know had the Cold War. Imagine the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the U.S. had no diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. Mm. Imagine there was no Soviet embassy in Washington where the Attorney General, the President's brother, could wander by for unofficial discussions. I think that would have been a much more dangerous world. Imagine in you know, June or October of 1950, if the U.S. and uh, the People's Republic of China had diplomatic relations, maybe it would have been possible to have avoided America's rush to the Yalu and the, uh, the Chinese intervention. So my view is that there are things that we could agree on, even if you don't get a nuclear deal. But you, And I think a peace declaration, not necessarily a peace treaty, but simply a declaration 
you know, some of these things I think would be uh, successes that might warrant a summit. And then you could move on and try to have serious discussions about what steps to take you know, in terms of closing Yang beyond what that would cost, those kinds of things. Now, Bruce Klemmer, when I interviewed him, was was dead set against a uh, uh, an end of war declaration or anything like that. Uh, so you, you, you've got some competition there in D.C. to try to get your message across there. Well, I'd like to believe that the war is over. I don't see why one can't recognize that. I mean, what I find strange are people who say, oh, my goodness, we couldn't do that. We couldn't have a peace treaty because then maybe people would think we should pull U.S. troops home. Well, if you can't make a case for the troops being there, given current circumstances, I don't see how the lack of a peace treaty or peace declaration would do that. I think the critical point here is that if there's any chance to get Kim to agree to denuclearization, if there's, that's at all a realistic possibility, it requires him to believe that he'll be secure. Now, quite honestly, the North Koreans would be crazy to believe the United States. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, imagine more Mark Gaddafi. Let's see what happened to him. He gave up his nukes and missiles. And he ended up as roadkill. I mean, you can go and look yeah, at the video. but that was a, a result of his own people rising up of against course, him, wasn't it? Of course, but the point is, if he hadn't, if he had had nuclear weapons, it's not at all clear the U.S. would have shown up bombing him. Had he not been bombed by the U.S. in Europe, he probably would still be in power. That bombing was possible because he didn't have nukes and he didn't have missiles. I mean, if you're another country and you look at that, what you realize is the most dangerous thing you can do is give up your weapons if you have the U.S. around. I mean, all you have to do is look at what happened to Saddam Hussein. You look at what happened with Serbia. You know, the U.S. is quite willing to use its military power for its own ends. And then this president is willing to tear up previous agreements. Why would Kim agree to that absent some belief that he is going to be secure? To me, you know, an end of war declaration at least it would be a starting point and say, look, if we get some denuclearization, then we can negotiate a treaty. You can, it can be a step to move forward. Again, as I advocated, test this. If we don't test it, we don't know if we're going to get anything. And to me, it's foolish not to test it. We've gotten further than we have in the past. There's an opportunity here. Can we talk about Iran for a moment? You wrote, a, uh, I think, an op-ed piece recently about Iran. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, can you compare the situation with the U.S. and Iran on the one hand versus the U.S. and North Korea on the other hand? Why does it seem that President Trump is going so hard on one and easy on the other? The simplest explanation is that he wants to do everything opposite what uh, you know, President Obama did. So President Obama you know, ignores North Korea, in effect. You know, obviously, President Trump wants to engage it. You know, President Obama decides to negotiate with Iran. Well, President Trump wants to bomb it. I mean, I think it's more than that, but I do think there's an element there that the president has kind of started out assuming whatever existing policy was was wrong, so he should go in the opposite direction. I mean, in many ways, the U.S. relationship with Iran is more tortured. That is, the U.S. has always been hostile to the North. The North was a creation out of the Cold War, launched the Korean War, you know, so and has essentially had kind of a a Cold War on the peninsula ever since, even when the larger Cold War disappeared. You know, Iran was a U.S. ally for 25 years. Uh, U.S. embassy was seized. You know, so that there's that sense of feeling, you know, that one has essentially treachery, that uh, your allies turned on you, you know, that your allies, assault, your former allies assaulted you. Uh, the, also, the question of Israel. Israel is, frankly, a more sensitive political issue than even the ROK. So that creates its own set of issues. And uh, certainly with this administration has become quite bewitched, you know, by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, my view is Saudi Arabia probably is as dangerous in its own way as Iran is. Or Pakistan, even. Absolutely. Without the nukes. That's right. 
I mean, the, the, the president, so the president seems to be uh, almost, I mean, fixated on Iran in a way that I don't understand. I mean, Iran does not have nuclear weapons. U.S. intelligence says it doesn't even have a nuclear, hasn't had a nuclear program since 2003. Objectively, Iran is far, far, far less dangerous than North Korea. So kind of the, the, the kind of this overheated reaction to Iran, I think, is all out of proportion to the kind of security threat. But that's that not opposes. just coming from the president, is it? I mean, John Bolton as well, who you, you earlier described as being very principled and actually believes what he says, you know, uh, not, not just being uh, cynical, that he's actually doing it for, for some sort of uh, broader reasons. Why do you think he's so uh, gung-ho on, on Iran right now? A lot of it appears to be this belief that the U.S. can kind of transform other societies. I mean, that was the argument, of course, with Iraq, that, you know, the U.S. could invade Iraq and everything would be wonderful. Drain the swamp, you know, all these wonderful things would happen. It seems to be a recurring uh, you know, dream. Part of it, I think, is very much tied to Israel. That is, people who support Israel want to eliminate what they perceive as a serious threat to Israel. More recently, for some reason, I mean, John Bolton has you know, spoken at these MEK you know, conventions. What's MEK? Oh, it's this kind of radical, uh, I mean, it's an anti-government group in Iran that's a very dubious one. It pays American politicians a lot to show up at its conventions. It presents itself as a democratic alternative, you know, and it's found it's you know, kind of gotten a lot of supporters through that, uh, you know, that to kind of present it as being an opposition force. A support for Saudi Arabia, which you know, is kind of, I think, historic. It doesn't Saudi Arabia is not nearly as important as it once was, but the issue of oil remains, you know, one there. All of these things have come together, I think, uh, and I think particularly the role of Israel. You think some of the neoconservatives that that is an emotional issue that's very powerful, and they see Iran understandably as a threat that way. And there's an emotional resonance there you don't see in the uh, you know kind of far in East Asia. Now, some of that emotional resonance comes from uh, people's religious views on Israel, doesn't it? It does, but the irony is it's virtually has virtually nothing to do with uh, kind of Jewish Americans, almost everything to do with evangelical Americans. That the strongest religious support for Israel comes from a fairly fundamentalist Christian community that uh, for complicated reasons, I mean, I mean, it gets into kind of end times theology and a number of other things. Many you know, American Jews are very disgusted with Israeli policy. I mean, the 50-year you know, occupation of Palestinian territories. There really has been a crackdown on civil liberties in certain ways within Israel, a, a radicalization. I mean, where we see in the cabinet people like Avigdor Lieberman, who's you know, called for expulsion of Arabs. I mean, the, the, what you find in the U.S. then is that in many ways, the strongest supporters of Israel are not Jewish Americans. In fact, they're evangelicals and other Christian Americans. At the Cato Institute uh, in Washington, D.C., you will be moderating Creating an event titled Peering Beyond the DMZ, or DMZ if you like, Understanding North Korea Behind the Headlines. You will have uh, as speakers three people who have carried out humanitarian aid missions to North Korea. Uh, what do you hope people will learn from this event, and what kind of effect do you hope it will achieve on policymakers in D.C.? Well, to some degree, I mean, I don't expect a direct impact on policymakers. But the one thing we find about policymakers in uh, the U.S. is that most of them have never been to North Korea. Mm. And most of them have very little sense in terms of what goes on on the ground. I think that it's useful. The, you know, the three people we're having have all been involved in projects out in the countryside. They've seen more of uh, North Korea. You know, they've seen potential changes that have been occurring uh, under the current government. So my hope is to simply have a, a bit of an open eyes that uh, we should know a little bit more about what we're dealing with. It doesn't necessarily change your policy prescriptions, but it does give you a little more sense of what's going on on the ground, what the possibilities are for change in the future. And I also think that it helps show the importance of humanitarian aid. 
which is it does have a transformational effect potentially on North Korean people. I mean, one of the great stories of, of one of the people who's going to be presenting was that you know, they do intensive programs and they see the same patients. They, they talk about chronic illnesses they mm. deal with. This is a multi-drug strain, uh, yes, drug-resistant exactly. uh, strain of tuberculosis. Yeah, absolutely. So what they find is you know, they go for the first time, they meet a patient and the patient is very nervous. You know, these are Americans who they have been told all their lives are hateful, you know, d- uh, terrible, deceitful people, etc. The next time they come, these people want them there. They understand they are being helped in ways their own government cannot help them. And to me, this is, you know, it's one person by one person. I mean, look, this is a top-down regime. Again, I have no illusions. But to me, this is part of that process of changing attitudes there, beliefs that I hope will have an overall impact over the long term. So I'd like to see them have an easier time doing their operations. I want policymakers to understand that, especially policymakers in the State Department who now make their lives miserable in terms of getting visas or, or getting the, the new passport necessary to visit North Korea. Any final thoughts or, or ideas to share with us before we go, Doug? Well, no, I thank you for having me on. I mean, I think you know, Korea, you know, re- people in the Republic of Korea should be extraordinarily proud of the country that they have created. I mean, they have, you know, coming out of the Korean War, I mean, the peninsula was absolutely devastated. It was horrific of the uh, circumstances of, you know, frankly, you know, people who were probably the grandparents of you know, many people today. And I think that what we see today in Korea, it's a vibrant democracy. It's gotten through some very tough times. I mean, you know, throwing out a president, some of the stuff that's gone on here have been extraordinarily difficult for political system. Uh, the economy, even despite the recent uh, you know, slowdown in growth. I mean, again, the transformation here has been extraordinary. So I think Korean people need to be extraordinarily proud. You know, my hope is that we can move in the future to create uh, greater stability and prosperity that uh, you know, Korean people deserve to live in a world of peace where they're not looking north, worried about an invasion. And I hope that world can come. Well, that's a great note to finish on. Thank you very much for joining us today, Doug Bandow. Thank you. And uh, listeners, don't forget that you can check out all of our past episodes of the uh, NK News podcast by going to nknews.org or also you can find them on iTunes or other uh, podcast platforms. Please leave us a review. One listener per week will be chosen for a free one-year subscription to uh, nknews.org. And uh, please do consider a subscription there because you'll find that it's one of the best sources of information on North Korea. Uh, thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>